You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Hefe, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Long John Sterling, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Life at sea holds far too many dangers to name. Now foremost in the minds of most that went to sea in the age of sail were storms. Storms were an ever-present danger, and ship killers frightened even the toughest seamen. And then there was injury, certainly. Injury on board a sailing vessel was a common, everyday kind of hazard, and ship's doctors were frequently just not up to the task of saving limbs or preventing infection. And then there were the other people on the sea. There were pirates, to be sure, or, if you were at war, enemy vessels. If you happened to be a pirate or a smuggler, the coast guard of any nation wasn't someone you wanted to run into. Some of my favorites, though, and especially on my mind, giving Halloween coming up, were the monsters. You know, we think of the Kraken as a myth, a sea monster out of legend, but now we know about real, giant, and colossal squid. They're some of the largest animals on Earth, and they're deadly predators. Now, naturally, sailors of old knew about them. That's where the myth comes from in the first place, but there wasn't any documentation of them, not anything that the scientific community could credit, until relatively recently. And really, if you struck up a conversation with an old sailor in a tavern somewhere, and he said to you, I have seen the Kraken lad thrice as large as any man it were, with a head like an axe and two black unfeeling eyes... A dozen arms it had like ropes, but covered with teeth and dipped with the most terrible hooks to pull you down. I mean, you might be fascinated, you might buy him a drink, but you wouldn't believe him, really, would you? And then there were sharks and whales and all manner of fell beasties. It's no surprise, after actually seeing so many strange creatures out there, that most sailors in the age of sail would believe in mermaids. Or, if they didn't actually believe, well, they would still be wary of them. After all, the world held many mysteries. And then there were the less mysterious dangers, like marooning and mutiny and the lash. But perhaps the most deadly killer at sea, except perhaps the storms, was what happened when your food stores ran low. Last time, we discussed the pirates under Sharp trying to reach the Galapagos. They got caught there in the doldrums, and they didn't see land for weeks on end. While they were out there, their stores ran low. They were put on rations of five ounces of flour and a single pint of water a day. One pint of water. Out at sea, under a baking sun, at the equator. That's just not enough. Men were known on board that vessel to trade half a pint of water for thirty pieces of eight. And soon, it couldn't be bought at any price. Thirst was a deadly killer at sea, and it killed more than a few sailors, but in this case it wasn't the lack of water that began to impact the pirates first. They'd taken a ship's worth of flour at Panama, and since then they'd fished and hunted for plenty of meat. They weren't going hungry, and they weren't going thirsty. However, a diet of flour and meat and water wasn't enough. The last time the pirates had eaten any fresh fruit or vegetables was likely back in the Kuna camp in Darien, months ago. While they were out at sea, subsisting on flour and water, the men began to develop sores in their mouths. 
and then they started bleeding from the gums, and then a few of them started to lose teeth. Tiny cuts that were inconsequential typically would start to bleed like they were serious wounds, and eventually some of them began to develop black spots on their skin. It was scurvy. The pirates knew what it was, and they knew it to be a killer, and they knew how to cure it too. Vegetables were good for scurvy. They knew that leafy greens were even better, but fruit, and especially citrus fruit, was the best. It was, at that time, much like the kraken, the sort of thing that seafaring men knew to be true, even if they didn't exactly understand it, and also the sort of thing that the rest of the world would take decades to fully latch onto. See, this was before most people knew how disease really worked. Now, they weren't the totally superstitious folk of the medieval era, and they understood that scurvy was a disease, but not that it could be prevented simply by eating fruit. They saw the fruit as a cure. They saw it as a medicine to be taken after the fact. They did realize, though, as they were sailing about the coast of Peru, that they were in desperate need of fresh fruits and vegetables. However, with the Spanish Coast Guard out of Lima and Arica and Guayaquil keeping them from approaching land, it would be almost as hard to find fruit as it was to find plunder. This is episode 45, Treasure Hunting. Now, it's of course a common trope that pirates were obsessed with treasure, but it's not really a misconception. As much as I love to burst your bubble about pirate myths, this one is actually pretty accurate. Captain Bartholomew Sharp called it, quote, the sacred hunger of gold, end quote, and rovers from Francis Drake and William Dampier all the way down to Ned Lowe all acknowledged that piracy was a commercial venture. Whatever your politics behind it might be, or whatever trappings and delusions of grandeur some pirates had, it was all about making money. Now, some of them were more honorable about the whole thing. They had rules written in stone about who you could attack and who was off-limits, about what you could do to get the plunder. Some of them had rules against torture or rape or, hey, let's keep the murder to a minimum, guys, and some pirates were much less bound by those ideas. Now, there were other bits of common knowledge that were shared among sailors, in addition to the kraken and mermaids and scurvy. Every pirate on the sea, and honestly, probably every English or Scottish or Irish or Welsh or Spanish citizen in the world knew about Francis Drake's raid on the mule train at Nombre de Dios. It was legendary. They also knew, most of them, that he was forced to bury some unknown amount of silver there on the Spanish main. You can really imagine, you can almost picture in your mind, the men under Henry Morgan marching across the isthmus not exactly expecting to find any, but keeping an eye out for any telltale glint. When the Mayflower, under Captain John Cox, landed on Drake's Isle, and once they realized where they were, you know that they had to be thinking about all of the silver bars that Francis Drake had dumped there a century earlier. Now, they probably knew, too, that they weren't going to find any of it. The Spanish had almost certainly already reclaimed all of it, but what if? I mean, if you were leading a party out to go gather water, wouldn't it just seem like the reasonable thing to do to mention that, as far as legend has it, Drake dumped a bunch of his silver into a river there? So, you know, keep your eyes open for any conspicuous piles of two or three tons of silver bars, just in case. You know how when the Powerball reaches like 400 million you might just go out and buy yourself a ticket. You know you're not going to win, of course. I mean, maybe you'll get like a hundred bucks, but not the jackpot. But even still, you're just a little bit crushed when you inevitably don't win. But you get over it pretty quickly. Now, how would you feel in that moment if someone told you, someone who was an insider, someone in the know, that there was another prize out there that dwarfed that 400 million? After they left Drake's Isle, Basil Ringrose writes, quote, Here our prisoners told us likewise that in the time of Oliver Cromwell, or the Commonwealth of England, a certain ship was fitted out of Lima with seventy brass guns, having on board her no less than thirty millions of dollars, or pieces of eight. 
all which vast sum of money was given by the merchants of Lima and sent as a present to our gracious king, or rather his father, who now reigneth, to supply him in his exile and distress, but that this great and rich ship was lost by keeping along the shore in the Bay of Manta or thereabouts. What truth there may be in this history I cannot easily tell. At least, it seems to me as scarce deserving any credit. End quote. Now, it's doubtful that these pirates knew very much about the inner workings of the royal family, but they did hear rumors. It was widely whispered that the Stuarts were at least sympathetic to the Catholic faith, if not secret practitioners themselves. Thirty million pieces of eight might be a bit exorbitant, but it's actually pretty likely that Spain was funding Charles Stuart. He was known to favor Catholicism, or at least members of his family were known to, and that was a big plus in Spain's eyes. But more to the point, he signed a treaty with Spain, the Treaty of Brussels, which agreed to aid Spain in their war against France and the Netherlands in return for support returning him to his throne. And even more importantly, every monarchy in Europe was working to see the Stuarts reclaim the throne. And this wasn't just politics. This wasn't that petty. They needed to see this little upstart rebellion in England crushed, and they needed to see the monarchy restored. Otherwise, the entire idea of a commonwealth might catch on. It already had in the Netherlands, and the monarchs of France and Spain were worried that they might just find their heads up on spikes right next to that former king of England. So it's actually possible that a Spanish treasure ship was sent from Lima to fund the king. However, if it did crash, there were extensive reclamation efforts on the part of the Spanish. They were unlikely to ever find any of it. But still, the pirates must have wondered. Did some of them want to go searching for all that silver? Well, perhaps they did, and some maybe even argued for it. But right now, they had much more pressing concerns. In that first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, Curse of the Black Pearl, Captain Jack Sparrow tells Legolas that not all treasure is silver and gold. Now, in that case, he was talking about Kira Knightley, but right now, the pirates were much more concerned with finding fruit than finding treasure. Every day, more men were getting sick, more of them were losing teeth, and some were even growing too weak to work. There was a growing possibility that the Spanish might find their old ship, La Santa Sima Trinidad, floating offshore, a ghost ship. And things aboard those two ships and Bartholomew Sharp's fleet weren't really going well at all. On board the Mayflower, John Cox was struggling to keep his crew in line. They were growing ever more angry about their situation. They were suffering from thirst and from scurvy, and they hadn't taken a real prize in months. Now aboard the Trinity, the flagship, things were even worse for Bartholomew Sharp. His crew was suffering as well. They were angry about their fortunes too. But the crew of the Trinity knew more than those on board the Mayflower. They were there when they had just recently taken that Spanish galleon, and they'd heard the words of her captain. They knew all about the fleets of Spanish warships out on the ocean, searching for them. They knew how well defended the ports at Lima and Guayaquil and Arica were, they knew how difficult it was going to be to move forward. And they knew that their admiral was listening more and more to the words of their Spanish prisoners. Captain Juan had more and more influence with Sharp every day. Andy was listening to that old Moor and taking his suggestion that they attack Arica. But at least that was something. I mean, they needed a prize. But there was more. The men were extremely disturbed by Sharp's killing of that Spanish friar. He'd been brought on deck and shot through the head as a warning to the other prisoners. It was a message. But as the still-twitching body was thrown overboard, the crew of the Trinity heard that message as well. Admiral Sharp was making clear just what a brutal, thoughtless, and unforgiving man he was. This was an unforgivable sin for the pirates. I mean, if you had to, you could kill a friar. Pirates could stomach a brutal captain, but he had to get results, and Sharp wasn't getting any results. He was leading them nowhere. It was becoming clear that he could turn that brutality on any of them at a moment's notice. What Sharp didn't know, though, is that there was a conspiracy afoot aboard the Trinity. 
You see, the warship was so large that it incorporated the crews of many pirate captains. These were men who were used to their own command, men who were now forced to toe the line and put up with Sharp's orders. Now among those was Edmund Cook, but every day he grew more and more defeated. The rest, though, were, well, they were disgruntled. John Cook, who was no relation to Edmund, was, well, he was planning something. He had a partner and close associate named Edward Davis, and those two, along with a cabal of lesser pirates, including William Dampier and Lionel Wafer, well, they were growing their numbers. Those two, Dampier and Wafer, had voted no on every one of Sharp's decisions, including his appointment to captain, and to many of the men it seemed that they had been proved correct time after time. It was clear that they were educated men, they were scientists, they were writers, and the men began turning to them for guidance. So that conspiracy under John Cook, Edward Davis, William Dampier, and Lionel Wafer was growing. The Trinity was becoming an ever more fractured place. It was becoming clear something had to happen to keep them all together. Now, Sharp might not know about their conspiracy specifically, but he did know that his situation was bad. He needed a win. He needed something to regain the crew's confidence. And then Providence dropped a prize in his lap. It was September 1st, 1680. During the night, a lookout spotted lights about six leagues in the distance. He informed the boatswain, who awoke Captain Sharp, to tell him the news. Sharp took a look at those lights and ordered the Trinity to set a course to follow. Now come morning they could make out sails, and everyone agreed to follow them. They sailed all day, and when night came once again, it was clear that the ship hadn't spotted them. They were careless with their lights, which gave the pirates a beacon to follow. The chase continued into the next morning, but it became a struggle. There wasn't much wind, so it was a slow chase. Plus, the men were growing ever more thirsty and restless. Their rations had been cut once again, down now to two cups of water a day. Every man was suffering from parched lips and a dry throat. They were all growing weak. Still, though, they sailed on after the ship. She still hadn't seen the pirates following her, and never so much as altered course. If she did see the pirates, that ship might very likely be able to escape, so the Trinity sailed on silently. At eleven o'clock in the forenoon, a mist rose, and it shrouded the Spanish vessel. She was hidden from the pirates for the rest of the day, and they began to lament her loss. Some believed that the Spanish knew this mist would rise, and chose to bide their time, using the mist to escape. Come nightfall, they still didn't have a sign. She'd left no lights in the night to give her away, but then, at daybreak, on Saturday the 4th, the pirates spotted their prey again. And she spotted the pirates. They were only about a league away, and it would be impossible to miss a great hulking warship bearing down on you. Still, though, the vessel didn't flee. They sailed on, but they gave the Trinity plenty of room to catch up. At last the pirates came in range of the ship, and they shot off a volley of small arms. They didn't fire at the ship, really, or at the men. They shot into the air, or they shot into the water. You see, they were shooting to announce themselves. About thirty or so years later, pirates would just raise the Jolly Roger to do that same job. It wouldn't waste any powder or shot, but before pirates flew the black, shooting their guns was their best option. It had the same effect, though. The Spanish ship lowered her sails and waited for the pirates. She was just a small merchant bark, not equipped to fight a warship full of hardened pirates. So the men cast lots to see who would get the privilege of boarding the ship and set about to boarding her. They saw that the crew was subdued and met with the captain and then set about to explore the holds. All in all, it was a peaceful affair. The pirates looted the cargo, they got mostly silk and cacao, and searched about for gold, but there wasn't any. They took some timber and rope and sailcloth. They had a mind to upgrade the ship and add some sails, but they were running low on some of what they might need. It was a small haul, but overall pretty good. Now, even though they were in desperate need of water, they left the Spanish all of the water they had on board. They even gave the Spanish some of their own flour. They might need that flour, and they definitely needed the water, but all of this was to a purpose. 
The pirates also left most of their prisoners with the Spanish. They were becoming an encumbrance, and the pirates didn't have the provisions to see them fed and watered. Then the pirates chopped down the mast of the Spanish vessel and left them idle. You see, they didn't want to starve the Spanish to death, but they couldn't have them rushing off to inform the authorities of their presence. Someone would eventually happen along to help them out. When they questioned the captain of the ship, they did get a bit of a surprise. The ship was sailing out of Arica toward Lima and Guayaquil in the north. The ship had seen them while the pirates were giving chase, actually, but they didn't see pirates. All they saw was a Spanish warship. They didn't expect any pirates in these southern waters. Last they had heard, the English had sacked Panama, and they didn't have any reason to believe that those pirates had continued south. This was intriguing. The captain of that Spanish galleon, the last ship they had taken, told them that the southern ocean was on lockdown. Every port was under a state of emergency, and the waters were virtually filled with warships. And yet, here was a merchant out of Arica that had no idea they were there. Now, it's absolutely possible that the ship had left Arica before the galleon. It's possible that they had never heard news of the pirates. She was a slow trader. And possibly she even put in at some smaller settlements, possibly even further south. The galleon was purposefully sailing out after the pirates, and it moved fast to that end, unlike this merchant ship. Regardless, the pirates, or at least most of the pirates, took this as a sign that Arica was lightly defended. They decided to ignore the words of that galleon's crew. They chose to attack Arica. The only Spanish prisoners that they chose to keep were the captain of that galleon, taken before Guayaquil, Don Thomas de Argandona, with two of his mates, Don Cristobal and Don Baltazar. Both were, quote, gentlemen of quality. Then there was Peralta, that old and stout Spaniard, and Captain Juan. Finally, there was that old Moor and the pilot of a ship taken outside of Panama, that one that was carrying the pay for the soldiers. They chose to keep, also, twelve slaves, who were made to do all their drudgery. I can only imagine what it must have been like for those twelve. If the pirates were running low on food and water, you can be sure that the slaves weren't getting a fair share, and they were probably worked harder than any pirate on board. Or, I mean, I suppose it's possible that they were given a decent share of water and flour, enough at least to keep them on their feet so that the pirates didn't have to do that hardest work. The English did pride themselves on being more humane, but none of our chroniclers go into detail here. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Either way, the ship sailed for Eureka, and the voyage took about two months. Remember, this was the beginning of September, and the pirates were already fairly far south of the equator. It was beginning to get cold. The chronicles begin to talk lovingly of fair days and bemoan the growing cold. 
Every day, with every league farther south, it grew colder. They began to see more and more snow, not at sea level, not yet, but on mountaintops. And still, they were having trouble finding water. They stopped a time or two on shore, but they only found small provisions, if anything, not enough to sustain them comfortably. September passed, and then most of October, but finally, on October 26, 1680, the pirates made landfall near Eureka. Now, they stayed far enough away to remain unseen, but close enough to row their boats to the city. Now, there were Spanish forts guarding all of the approaches by water, and as they were rowing in, the Spanish spotted them and shot off a barrage of cannon fire. They knew that they'd been spotted and that their assault on Arica wasn't going to be a success, so they turned around and rode away. Then they came to an Indian village. It was near a large sugar plantation. They found there, most importantly, a good source of water and food and most essentially some fruit. The natives led the pirates to gather that water and they gave them some of the needed fruit as gifts, likely because the pirates looked desperate and starving and still they didn't attack. For the rest of it they traded, and the pirates paid up fairly. See, this was an important place for them to occupy. That sugar plantation would be an important source of income to the Spanish. So after a few days spent recovering from their months and months at sea, a party of landed Spanish gentlemen arrived under a flag of truce. Ringrose notes how cordially they treated with the pirates, and what gentlemen of quality they were. These men asked the pirates specifically not to despoil their sugar plantations or their farms or their ranches. They were needed to provide food and to provide income. In return, those Spaniards, mostly plantation masters and ranchers, agreed to bring Sharp and his men barrels of fresh water, water to fill their existing barrels, a small ransom in coin, and several hundred head of cattle for them to salt and bring aboard their ships. The pirates, astonishingly, agreed to these terms. I think, though they don't say so explicitly, that the pirates were too sick and too weary for a fight. Several months of provisions sounded better than plunder to them at that moment. So the Spanish went off and promised to return in a few days' time to deliver the goods. The English spent those days eating and drinking fresh water and recovering. That few days later, those Spaniards returned and claimed that a sudden storm had delayed their herders. Now this set off alarm bells for the pirates, but they really wanted that beef and that water, so they waited. Then, according to Sharp, quote, November the 2nd. This morning we expected our beefs, but in lieu of them the Spaniards sent us 300 horsemen to fight us. So we drew out our men in plain ground for fear of ambuscades and resolved to stand the shock for we had left a select guard to receive our canoes and boat when they should come to shore. The enemy came riding at full speed towards us. We thought their horse would have charged us home, but when they came within reach of our fusees, we dismounted most of their front with a volley of small shot, which put a stop to their career and courages. Not finding it safe to come nearer, they fairly wheeled off to the left and took shelter amongst the hills. This confirmed us that we should get no other beefs. End quote. With the Spanish away in the hills, licking their wounds, the pirates decided that if the Spanish would not keep their side of the bargain, neither would they. A contingent of the pirates, some of their most elite, marched off to that sugar plantation. There they dismantled and destroyed the machinery to process the sugar. Then they dumped oil on everything in the processing house and lit it a fire. They despoiled the raw sugar and the fields as best they could, they found a few white men left at the plantation, and they killed them. They set the slaves free. Now, this wasn't an act of emancipation. This was a headache for the masters, which would give the English time to escape. But then they set fire to the big house. They ensured that every inch of that house was on fire before they marched away back to their ships. Before returning to the ships, they went once more to that Indian village, there they traded once again for herbs and grain and, quote, most excellent fruit. The natives hadn't been willing to trade that stuff before, so this was taken by force, but they did leave a fair sum of silver in return. Things still weren't great for the pirates, though. 
They had been decried by the Spanish Atarica, and they hadn't taken any plunder of any worth in, well, most of spring and all of summer, and now a good chunk of autumn. At least, though, they had some food, and they had plenty of water, and they had bellies full of vitamin C. So the ships continued south. They hoped that they could outrun word of their presence on the Spanish mainland. They had food and they had water, but winter was now fully upon them. They frequently saw blinding mists and snowstorms, and the cold was becoming a real danger. They were well into the Viceroyalty of Chile now, and they spent another month at sea. The men grew more and more discontent. Every passing day brought them more hardships and less money. There were storms, there was blowing cold, there was an ever-growing sense that they might never again see the warm climate of home. Now, William Dampier was absolutely enjoying seeing all of the new lands and all of the flora and fauna. Still, even he began to grow concerned that he might never get to see the home that he had purchased back in England or his wife ever again. And many of the men still had light pockets. Many of them had lost their coin through gambling or bartering for water, and they had virtually nothing to show for the voyage. Now, they would eventually sell their contraband back in Port Royal or wherever they made landfall, and that would net them a good bit of money, but it wasn't the same as a purse full of gold. So Sharp now felt that his command was in its most precarious position to date. He set out to find a new target. To that end, he turned once again to his Spanish prisoners. They were coasting offshore of the Coquimbo region of Chile, and they were very near the capital of La Serena. It was a sizable city, and honestly it still is today, but the city was far enough removed by sea and by mountains that there was a possibility that word might not have reached them yet of the pirates' presence. So they made landfall on December 2nd. They had two leagues to row to shore in the dark of the pre-dawn hours. Now, some canoes were heavier than others, and consequently about half of the men reached the shore first. Now, all day they hadn't seen a single ship, or a fisherman's boat, or a shore-bound watch, or really any presence of humans besides themselves. They were close to town, and that didn't seem natural. They realized that the perimeter was quiet, a little too quiet. All in all, there were 88 pirates, and that first group to reach the shore of about 35 espied a nearby storehouse and went to investigate. They found there an ambush set by Spanish horsemen. At least 100 cavalry fell on them. They swooped in and they unleashed a volley of musket fire. The pirates returned fire and the Spanish horse fled the field. But those Spaniards had more than double the numbers, and besides they were mounted. There was no reason for the Spanish to have fled the field. They could have crushed the pirates. But they didn't. It was easy. A little too easy. The rest of the pirates had made sure, and they heard the firefight. They rushed in to support their brethren, but they were surprised to find the Spanish already gone. So they followed the horsemen. All the while, they suspected a much larger ambush to crush them. Now an ambush came soon enough, but much like the last encounter, the Spanish fired and fled. The English returned fire, but it was already at the retreating backs of the Spanish. This unnerved the pirates. It was all too easy. Still, though, the pirates followed. Again, another ambush and a retreat. At last, it became clear. This wasn't a defense of the city. It was a diversion. They were leading the English away from town to give the locals time to flee. So Sharp ordered the company to turn around and march on La Selena. But he also said to keep an eye to their rear. The Spanish could come in at any time. The Spanish didn't, for whatever reason. The pirates made the town by afternoon, and it was already predictably deserted. Ringrose writes, quote, The Spaniards had received intelligence thereof from some secret spies they had in the town. Both the men and their women were all fled to places that were more occult and remote. So that by this search they only found an old Indian woman and three children, but no gold, nor plate, nor yet any other prisoners. End quote. There was virtually no one in the city, 
just abandoned houses and deserted churches and empty storehouses. Then the pirates were approached by someone. It turned out to be a slave who said that he had hidden when everyone else fled town, and he told them the story. The pirates had been spotted two days prior from cliffs overlooking the ocean. The Spanish immediately began collecting their goods and moving out. The threat, though, of a slave uprising became suddenly very apparent, so the Spanish took twelve men and women into the city square and killed them to quash any thought of revolt. The rest of the slaves were then herded out of town carrying all of the citizens' goods. This hidden slave told the pirates that all the treasure of any consequence was gone, but that if the pirates were to find those slaves, they might just rise up again. Instead, Sharp decided to pillage the city for all that they could find. Now, there wasn't much for treasure, to be sure. There was just, you know, occasional bits of silver and a few casks of indigo and spices, things that were too heavy to be carried away, but no great quantities of gold and jewels. There were no golden crucifixes left in the church. And the pirates were disappointed. It was growing close to a year since they had taken a real prize. I mean, disappointment doesn't cover it. They were angry. Now, they drowned some of that anger in the wine they found around town or the delicate foods they indulged in. They had strawberries and fruits and vegetables that most of the men had never tasted before. They had rich creamy dishes and yeasty bread. And all of it was satisfying, especially with the drinks, but it still wasn't plunder. Still, they loaded up more than a little of what they found to take with them. The following morning, a retinue of city officials arrived to talk with the pirates. They were afraid that, since there was no treasure left in the town of any consequence, the pirates might burn down the city. So, those Spanish officials agreed to pay a ransom of 95,000 pieces of eight. The pirates thought this was a fair price, but they'd been lied to before and all of them knew that the Spanish were shifty and untrustworthy. All day the pirates loaded up their ships with food and what scant goods they could find, but they prepared too for a fight. On the following morning, much like on their last raid, the Spanish arrived and begged for more time. Once again the pirates agreed, but this time they set about destroying churches. They set about despoiling what food they wouldn't be taking with them. They did everything in their power, without burning the city, to prove that La Serena would be utterly destroyed if the ransom was not paid. Then they carried away even more goods, nearly filling their holds completely. Then, to quote Ringrose once again, quote, In the night the Spaniards opened a sluice and let the water run in streams about the town, with intent either to overflow it and thereby force us out, or at least that they might easier quench the flame in case we should fire the town. On the next morning we set fire to the town. The Spaniards had not performed, or rather that they had never designed to perform their promise. We fired as nigh we could every house in the whole town to the intent it might be totally reduced to ashes. End quote. They stayed in town to ensure that it was well and fully burnt without giving the Spanish any time to come in and fight the blaze, and then they left. La Serena was a pile of rubble, and the pirates returned to their ships. However, as much as pirates enjoyed desecrating Catholic churches and drinking up a town's wine, as much as they enjoyed burning the cities of the hated Spanish, that wasn't why they were there. They were there to make some money, and for nigh on a year they hadn't made any at all. So, after the burning of La Serena, it was time for a change. Back on board the Trinity, all the pirates assembled. About 140 men were left, and they had decisions to make. The first order of business on which to vote was the removal of Admiral Bartholomew Sharp. Resoundingly, the pirates voted yes. Now, a few months earlier, Bartholomew Sharp might very well have had the numbers to intimidate the dissenters into keeping him in power. But now, even most of his old crewmen voted for a change. He just wasn't doing his job. They weren't making any money. The real question wasn't whether or not Sharp would be replaced, but who would replace him. The obvious choice was Edmund Cook, but he still wanted no part of command. Then there was John Cook... 
He had the support of William Dampier and Edward Davis and Lionel Wafer. Their little conspiracy had likely been working overtime behind the scenes to orchestrate this little coup. Now, both Ringrose and Sharp call it a mutiny, but this absolutely was not a mutiny. Every time any pirates set out, they would vote on the captain. Typically, that was a formality, but a captain could be replaced at any time except when battle was joined. It could get a little dicey when the question of exactly who owned the ship came into question. If it was your ship and you served as captain, they might be able to vote you out with their rights completely intact, but then you could just kick them off your ship. It was your ship. Assuming they didn't, of course. Then begin a true mutiny and just take your ship away. But the majority of the crew voted against John Cook in favor of a man named John Watling. Watling wasn't mentioned in any of the accounts of this voyage until this point, and it appears that this was his first command. He made a good case, though. They should return, he argued, to Eureka. They had already been repelled once, and the Spanish wouldn't be expecting them. It seemed like a good enough plan, and to most on board the voyage, it took them back north, it took them closer to home, and there was potential for real plunder. So it was agreed upon. John Watling was captain, and they would attack Arica. But his first order of business was cutting free all of the prisoners. At least all of the Spanish they had on board. They were a liability, and Watling, much like most of the crew, thought that they had been purposefully leading the pirates astray. Personally, I tend to agree on that. This is a move that should have been done months ago. Now, you know how when you take a drive to go somewhere fairly far away, the drive back always seems shorter? Well, it was that way for the pirates. And actually, it was a literal truth since they weren't fighting the wind all the way, but they also had ample food and ample water, and the weather began to warm, and they had a new captain... It was a pleasant and easy voyage for the pirates. When Christmas came, the pirates enjoyed a feast on the shore. They caught fowl and turtles, but mostly they caught crab that was bigger than anything they'd ever seen before. There was drinking and there was singing. A round of guns was fired off to mark the holiday. They enjoyed this Christmas on the Juan Fernandez Islands. Those islands were lush and rich with life, and it made them a good place to stay. As yet, they were little known to Englishmen, but they would become much better known in later years. On a later voyage, a privateer named Alexander Selkirk will elect to maroon himself on those islands. He'll be rescued some years later by a different English voyage under the same captain, and he will inspire the novel Robinson Crusoe. Now, all of that we'll talk about, but later. This Christmas, 1680, was the last time that all of the pirates would be together and at peace. It was just a few days after Christmas that a well-loved man aboard the Mayflower named John Milliard, well, he died of the dropsy. He'd been so respected by all of the pirates that he'd single-handedly kept the crew of that lesser ship together. Now, John Cox was captain, but it was John Milliard who really led the men. Upon his death, though, all hint of unity went overboard. Arguments broke out, and fights, and calls for a vote, but it was clear that even if they voted, these men would not come together. So they chose instead to split command between John Cox and a man named John Fall. Now, they weren't captains. There was no captain left on the Mayflower. Instead, they were watch commanders. Think about them like managers in a business owned by the employees. On January 1st, 1681, it was clear that the voyage was not going to hold itself together. The crew of the Mayflower was entirely split asunder. Men had been stabbed. Men had been shot at. It was anarchy on board the Mayflower. So John Cook took control of the situation. Or, at least, he took his fifty or so men over to the Mayflower and told them how it was. They were all to report aboard the Trinity. He was taking command of the Mayflower. Edward Davis, Lionel Wafer, William Dampier, all of their companions came with them. But this wasn't an appointment by Admiral Watling. It wasn't a vote by the crew. John Cook just did it. 
He had the support of about a third of their entire fleet, but he just took the Mayflower. Now, Bartholomew Sharp knew what this was, and we can assume that John Watling was smart enough as well, but there was nothing that either of them could do about it. The Mayflower, under John Cook, might sail with the Trinity in the Southern Ocean, but she was now her own ship. That ship was independent, and it was free from the confines of control. Still, the entire fleet sailed towards Arica. On the way, they encountered three men of war, the Santo Cristo of ten guns, the San Francisco of eight guns, and another which they never caught the name of. Ringrose wrote, quote, As soon as they saw us instantly, they put out their bloody flags, and we, to show them that we were not as yet daunted, did the same with ours. We kept close under the wind, and were, to confess the truth, very unwilling to fight them, by reason they all kept in a knot together, and we could not single out one of them, or separate him from the rest especially considering that our present commander, Watling, had showed himself at their appearance to be faint-hearted. As for the Spaniards themselves, they might have easily come to us since we lay by several times, but undoubtedly they were cowardly given, and peradventure as unwilling to engage us as we were to engage them. End quote. So the pirates came across three men of war who could have entirely destroyed them, seen them all sunk to the bottom of the ocean, and the men on board were too cowardly to attack. This was good news for the pirates, but not great news for the Spanish. The pirates were closing in on Arica by the end of January. It was growing warmer, and even occasionally near to hot at midday, and the crew was reveling in it. They took a few prisoners at a small fishing village and interrogated them. There wasn't any torture, apparently, but they found out everything they needed to know. Then Watling took one old man aside, who he believed had disrespected him, and shot him through the head. The men were as troubled by this as they had been by Bartholomew Sharp shooting the friar. In fact, Bartholomew Sharp, according to his later testimony, was the most troubled. He argued against it, he said, but since he wasn't captain any longer, he didn't have any power. He said, quote, Gentlemen, I am clear of the blood of this old man, and I will warrant you a hot day for this piece of cruelty whenever we come to fight at Arica. That from the man who cut a friar's throat for protesting torture, sure. But Ringrose then wrote that, quote, These words were found at the latter end of this expedition of Arica to contain a true and certain prophecy, as shall be related hereafter. End quote. By this time, it was January 30th. And that was a day that Ringrose notes is marked on the English calendar as the day of martyrdom of their glorious King Charles I. But it was also the day that the pirates made landfall and marched on the city. There were only about 130 some odd men with them. And this was one of the greatest cities on the Pacific. This was not a great plan. Then they came close to one of the city's outlying forts. The city had several and they were spotted by a scout on a hilltop. Watling ordered 40 men to arm themselves with grenades and with muskets to take the fort. That leaves, what, like 85 men to attack Arica? This makes sense on a certain level. If they wasted all of their time and all of their forces on the fort, the people of Arica would have time to get their goods out, and the same thing that has happened to them so many times already would happen to them again. But I mean, come on. Forty men can't take the fort. They lost several in just the first few minutes of the attempt. And those 85 men trying to take Arica, well, they got pinned down by enemy fire. Then those at the fort had to leave their engagement with enemies to their rear and help the men who were under fire at Arica. Now, Ringrose gives a glorious account of the battle, including such statements as, quote, our rage increasing, with our wounds we still advanced, and at last we beat the enemy out of all and filled every street in the city with dead bodies. End quote. There's a lot of that sort of talk, but all of this and all of his peppering in grandiose statements about their glorious king and English valor in the face of vile Spanish treachery, well, despite all of that, they lost. At least a dozen men were killed on the battlefield, and maybe double that were wounded. So the men retreated, 
Among those slain was John Watling himself. It wasn't Watling's death that had led to their defeat, as Sawkins had. He was really never much of a commander. When they finally returned to the ships, they took time to see to the wounded, but it was a somber crew of pirates. Bartholomew Sharp installed himself as captain. There wasn't a vote, he just took command again. And the men at this point were too weary to argue against it. Once again, Bartholomew Sharp tried to establish himself as admiral. He tried to enforce his command over the Mayflower, but neither John Cook nor Edward Davis or Dampier or Wafer or any of the crew of the Mayflower were having that. It might have come to blows. It might have been a real firefight, which the Mayflower was likely to have lost if the men of the Trinity weren't still bleeding from their defeat outside Eureka. So come dawn, the Mayflower was sailing north. They were sailing for the Isthmus and the Kuna and Panama, and Sharp's Trinity, which was now crewed by, what, 80 healthy men? Well, they sailed south. Next time, we're going to follow the Mayflower. We'll discuss their next moves, and we'll discuss what they found waiting for them, and then we'll discuss what happens to each member of the crew who we'll be following in the months and years to come. However, that doesn't mean that the voyage of the Trinity and Bartholomew Sharp is over. We're going to stay with the crew of Cook and Dampier for a while, but we will return to what's happening in the Southern Ocean with the crew of the Trinity and Bartholomew Sharp. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to especially thank everybody who has been kind enough to help support us. When I'm working on an episode and I begin to question whether or not it is any good at all, sometimes I will go to read the reviews that so many of you have left at places like iTunes. Or sometimes I'll receive a message from one of you on Facebook or Twitter or on the Patreon, and it really helps keep me going. So thank you to all of you. It also helps really get the show noticed, so I appreciate that element of it as well. Also, everybody who has signed up, including all of our new patrons on Patreon, I couldn't do this show without you, so thank you to each and every one of you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the absolutely fantastic band Brillig. If you have not checked them out yet, I definitely suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us at Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Once again... Most importantly, and as always, thank you for listening. Too rough. You guys, knock it off.